0: Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. Heavenly Father, we always come every Sunday. We have eaten uh, so many meals, we have consumed so many calories, and yet each week we come with new hunger because we come hungry for your word. We are people who need your bread. Uh, Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word of God. And so Jesus, nourish us today so that on this first day of the week, um, this market day of the soul, we are to fill up uh, with your truth uh, the very Uh, calories that we need in order to worship you and serve you uh, for your glory. We pray all this in your name. Amen. In 1971, a man named Dan Cooper boarded a flight uh, in Portland, Oregon, headed to Seattle, Washington. At some point in that very short flight, he alerted a stewardess that he had a bomb with him and that he would blow up the plane if he did not receive $200,000 cash. So upon landing in Seattle, Cooper had arranged through the pilots in the airport to exchange the passengers for two things. One, a suitcase full of money, and second, a parachute. Having both those items, he ordered the flight crew um, to fly to Reno, Nevada, and somewhere in the Pacific Northwest, D.B. Cooper took the briefcase, put on the parachute, jumped out of a commercial airline, and slipped away unnoticed somewhere somewhere in the woods the fbi maintained an active investigation over the now infamous db cooper case for over 45 years they considered over 800 suspects but in the end they couldn't catch him it remained to be one of the most or it will come to be one of the most famous examples of criminals who constantly gave the authorities the slip and we've been working through the gospel of luke And if you remember way back in Luke chapter 6, the authorities of the day, the religious officials, the scribes, the chief elders, and the Pharisees, they began to scheme against Jesus. Luke tells us that filled with fury, they discussed with one another what they might do about Jesus. So Luke 6 in our preaching calendar was over a year and a half ago. Now remarkably so, it was longer In Luke's actual narrative. It's been almost two years since Luke 6. Two years of authorities and officials seeking and challenging and scheming and laying traps. But despite their best attempt, Jesus always gave them the slip. But now Jesus has come into Jerusalem. He's been walled in by the city that is the very hope of Jerusalem, And now Jesus has been surrounded by the whole choir of his critics who have gathered together for a literal murderer's row of traps. They're finally going to catch him. But last week, we saw it. This week, we'll see it. And next week, we'll see it again, that Jesus gives them the slip. Last week, they schemed. And by the end of it, they were openly rebuked by Jesus. And Luke tells us that today's attempt, which Jonathan just read for us, has two motivations. It is one part retaliation, and it is one part change of tactics. Notice how Luke says this in verses 19 and 20. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived he told this parable against them. How perceptive of them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere. "...that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor." So last week, Jesus stares at these religious officials and he says, you have rejected me the cornerstone and just how the people who murdered and killed the owner's son in the vineyard are liable to judgment, you're liable to judgment. And it was both, you know, Jesus' word and his look and all of this where they had this wonderful moment of insight saying, maybe he's talking to us. And now, like master tacticians, these officials who just went and engaged in open battle and were eviscerated before them, now take another angle. Do you notice it? Espionage, spy games, guerrilla warfare. Instead of outright confronting Jesus, they've learned their lesson. They're going to infiltrate and trap him through the very crowds that Jesus himself loves and is teaching and healing. Their attempt, their means is the crowd, but their end and and, then the true trap is they're going to trap him with the very things you never feel more trapped about when someone brings it up at the dinner table religion and politics, God and governors, Christ and Caesar. And this is going to be our main point today. What Jesus is going to show us is that in regards to the state and to the self, Christians are to render everything to Christ the ruler. In regards to the state and to the self, Christian Christians are called to render everything to Christ who is the ruler. Now before you try to give me the slip to get out of this sermon, I want to remind you that the primary thrust of this text is not political. It's actually theological. In this what's made it really hard for me as the preacher these 3 weeks, we're in the middle of this three-part section, is that the issues Jesus are talking about is not actually the primary point of the text. The primary point of the text is that despite the best laid plans of sinful, wicked men, Jesus' character and authority are unrivaled and unassailable. Jesus is unique. Jesus is king. And yet, the nature of Jesus shapes the nature of our politics. And Jesus and Luke are here assuming that we will often wrestle to justify the two. But Jesus is not on the side nor is he in secret, he's at the center. Paul says this in Colossians 1, verse 16, and listen to this language here. He says, through Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, whether visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. In other words, if the Bible is true, which to be a professing believer must admit that the Bible is true, And if Jesus is who he proves himself to be in this text, someone who is unassailable and uncapturable by human standards, then the creative and reigning Christ is central to our public and our private lives. How we interact with government and how we interact with God. And to that end, we're going to see three spheres of authority in this text, stemming from the weight of the parable we looked at last week of authority rejected. And we're going to see three things today. We're going to see first distorted authority. Then we're going to look at governmental authority. And lastly, we're going to examine devotional authority. And so let's first turn to the distorted authority that we see here in the scribes and the chief priests. And a little bit of uh, Bible story contrast is helpful for us today. So back in Exodus chapter 20, and so it's actually the scene... um, Uh, right before the scene that Ellen just read for us this morning in our scripture reading, uh, where the Israelites made an idol. uh, God comes in glory and fire and lightning and dwells upon Mount Sinai. And the people, God's people brought out of Egypt, led there by God, are fearful, so fearful, they come to Moses in Exodus 2019 and they say this. They say, you Moses, you, you speak to us and we'll listen to you but don't let God speak to us, lest we die. They encountered such a powerful authority that they feared it. And this is significant when it comes to understanding Luke chapter 20, because in Exodus 20, the glory of God appeared and the people feared God so much so that they were scared even to talk to him, which is in itself an anemic understanding of God and shows us the need of a future mediator greater than Moses. But here in Luke 20, God didn't come in fire and cloud God came in flesh in bone Jesus Christ was there and he spoke to them even more condemning words whoever stumbles on the stone will be destroyed and if the stone falls on anyone it will crush him and what do these men do the exact opposite of those who saw the glory of God in Exodus 20. Verse 19 tells us that they sought to murder Jesus and they feared man. In Exodus 20, the Israelites encountered the authority of God and feared him. In Luke 20, the Israelites encountered the authority of God and they fear man. Their sense of authority was entirely distorted. Ed Welch has a great book with an even greater title. It's called When People Are Big and God is Small. When people are big and God is small, isn't that what we see here? These men are upset at Jesus, upset enough to kill him. But what keeps them from doing anything? What is bigger than their thoughts on Jesus? Their thoughts on man. They wanted to do so much, but they feared man. The apostle John tells us that when Jesus rules our hearts, his perfect love casts out fear. But when man rules our heart, fear is never ending. Now I will say, as an aside, I heard many people say to me this week that they wore bell bottoms this past week. You can criticize my preaching all you want, but if I brought that freedom from fear of man, then this is an apostolic act. (laughs) And so here we see when man is the authority, when man is big and God is small, it distorts everything. Because what we begin to do, if man is big, is we think that man can fix our problems. And so if man is the problem, we will turn to man to save us from the problem of man. And that's what these men did here in verse 20. Did you notice that? It says, they watched Jesus. They, went, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the Roman authorities. Now, notice their language here when they approach Jesus. Verse 21, So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to give tribute that's tax, tribute to Caesar, or not? Now, to be clear, all of us are born into a problem of distorted authority. The very first thing you do when you are born is you begin to cry. Part of that cry is directed at God saying, why have you made me? Part of that is directed at your parents in a trend that will continue forever. Okay? We come out rejecting authority. And that's because in Adam and Eve, we have exchanged the true ruler for images of rulers. And yet, there are some who are keenly aware, but intentionally present as the opposite. They present as sincere, seeking to appeal to Jesus as their authority, teacher. But in their hearts is not sincerity, but they come as spies, not as saints, but as spies. And we need to be warned, lest that be in our own hearts, dear church. The 11th century pastor and thinker Anselm said something quite famous of how he defined the Christian faith, the Christian life. He called it faith seeking understanding. It's beginning as faith and something apart from himself, but then there is this intellectual right wrestling, challenging, and questioning. It's not wrong to seek to know more about Jesus. It's not wrong to want to ask him questions. It's not wrong to realize that the Christian worldview is completely out of sorts with the default human worldview. And if that is true, then questioning, examining, and critically understanding that division is often a very good and godly work. But oftentimes our seemingly sincere questions of apologetics or of authority or of interpretations come not out of a sincerity to submit to Jesus or seek out Jesus because he is the authority, but we make ourselves the authority. We don't want answers from Jesus. Jesus has to answer to us. We distort God's truth and we place it under our own perception instead of putting our own perception under God's truth. Anselm described this in a positive way. What does it look like to properly believe and seek understanding? He says this, He says, "For I do not seek to understand so that I may believe, but I believe so that I may understand." In other words, his seeking of answers from Christ through Scripture begin with the belief that Jesus is the authority. There are people who seek to understand so that they may believe. We call those people, rightfully and without any sense of name-calling, non-believers. They are not believing, and therefore they are seeking so that they might believe. And that is wonderful. If you're here today and you're in that camp, I want you to know that the Christian faith is intellectually consistent, but it is consistent with God's perception of the world, not yours. Therefore, we come and see if it is internally consistent with what God says but we have to admit that that's gonna be internally inconsistent with what we think. But for those of us who claim belief in Jesus, you Christian, you believer, let's realize that we come to him as a matter of first importance in our faith, that he is the authority and we are not. For Christ to be the savior, we are therefore the sinner. For Christ to be the creator, we are therefore the creation. And we come to him there. And it's all too simple to present as sincere in our examinations of Jesus while being entirely insincere in our examinations of self. We want to find the faults and the flaws and the inconsistency with Jesus, but we're unwilling to even assess where our own hearts are broken. And if that's you, I commend to you that the path of wisdom begins not with reason, but with repentance towards Jesus. It comes by submitting ourselves to Jesus as king and realizing that if there's logic here, it is logic according to him and is to be sought out and treasured and believed, but it is not logic according to you as the inquisitor. We should not be uncritical of our own hearts in approaching Christ. And if that idea of repentance is bristling to you, then I would like to show you, you have a problem with authority by a biblical standard. You see, for the believer who comes as these spies to Christ, the problem is not what you can't believe. It's what you won't believe. They refuse to even call him Messiah. He is just teacher. You answer me with the logic and I'll believe. But brothers and sisters, we are not saved by logic. We are saved by the Logos who took on flesh to take our sins so that we might through faith be regenerated and converted to God. When we are big, God is small. And Luke so humorously deflates big humans in this text. Just notice the words. I love Bible study, right? We, we believe in verbal plenary inspiration. The parts and the whole of scripture are inspired by God. So look at how uh, wonderfully humorous the Lord is. Verse 20. They did this that they might catch him in something he said. Verse 26, and they were not able in the presence of people to catch him in what he said. The narrator said they did not. None of us will ever catch Jesus. And here's why Jesus did not come to be caught, Jesus came to lay down his life. Jesus did not come to be caught by sinners. But to go to the cross for sinners. That's why we cannot approach the gospel from the platform of our own understanding, because Jesus's self-sacrificial act makes no sense from a worldly perspective. These are unjust, lying, malevolent, scheming enemies who are going to crucify him. It would have made sense for him to defend himself, to call to truth, to boast in his rights as a citizen. But that's because the cross of Jesus is not a triumph of man's authority. It's a triumph of God's authority. Jesus says in John 10, 17, and 18, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. Jesus went to the cross, not because wicked men triumphed, but because Jesus is, because, as the prophet Isaiah reminds us, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And because Jesus' own ministry and life and flesh was in submission to the Father's authority, so too must we seek to devote what sin distorts in regards to authority. We must realize that this world makes sense first and foremost, not as we see it, but as God sees it. Not from the subjective perspective of the creation, but from the objective perspective of the creator. You might deny that God created and that's fine. You must repent. It's not gonna be fine one day. But if you believe that God did create, then we must put our own thoughts and authority, and agendas, and interpretations under his. And it's from this perspective that we now address the heart of the challenge in this text. How do God and man interact in regards to, what is our second point today? Governmental authority. Governmental authority. Uh, these false, falsely sincere, falsely righteous is actually the, the Greek word. Uh, these spies say they want to be faithful to the way of God. But their question is, how can we be faithful to the way of God, teacher, if there are other authorities in our life? In this instance, the Caesar of the Roman Empire. If he is calling for our allegiance and our affection and our monies, how do we manage God calling for all those same things? Now, the issues of taxation and the legitimacy of Caesar's government was of great debate during this time. Isn't that crazy that people would be in arms about politics? What a simple time. Um, But it it was so distinct back then because almost as it was today, it had these three unique places of intersection. First, the Romans were to revere Caesar as God, which is the same as today. They're just more honest about it, okay? We all view our politicians as God. These ones just codified it so that we knew that they were being intentional. And so there was a potentially religious element to their interaction with the state. Second, there was a moral element an almost fraudulent element with this. In Judea, it was estimated that through a slew of various taxes, roughly a third of their income was taken um, by the government, most of it not spent on what it was supposed to be spent upon. But then on top of that, there were the Jewish tax collectors who were Roman sympathizers, uh, and they would extract even more um, unlawful taxes from the people. So there's a moral element to it. And then lastly, the issue of primary importance as it relates to this text is the political element. Was Caesar king or was God king? Did the Jews have to pay tribute on the land to Caesar because it was Caesar's land or was it God's land? How do they reconcile this? And so the question, therefore, was brilliant from a human perspective. Because not only would Jesus already begin to stir up differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, one being more hostile but open uh, as far as they get... um, religious freedom. The other, the Sadducees, kind of being treated as a kind of a, a, an elite sect by the Roman government. But they knew Jesus' own disciples. Can you believe it, that there was religious diversity even, or re- political diversity among Jesus' disciples? There are men like Simon, who were a zealot, a, a, a violent political group against Rome, like, like a Jewish nationalist in this sense. But then there was also individuals like Matthew, who was a Jewish tax collector, who sympathized with Rome, at least at some point in his life. And so from the, the scribe's perspective, there are only two options by which Jesus would hang himself either way. First, Jesus had to affirm Rome's legitimacy and rule. In doing so, he would fail to meet messianic expectations of a national Israel. He would tear apart the already politically diverse base of his disciples, and it would crumble from the inside. That was option one. Option two we see in verse 20, is the preferred plan of the scribes. The preferred plan is that Jesus says something negative about Rome so that they could go to Roman courts and accuse Jesus of treason. Now, they needed, as we'll see in Luke, Rome's help because uh, the Jews did not have the legitimacy to put anyone to death. That was only a Roman uh, punishment. And so they needed Rome to be involved in order to kill Jesus. And so that's part of why they did this. And so either be destroyed from the inside or be killed by Rome. It was a perfect plan until it met the perfect person. Notice how Jesus answers the question in verse 23 and 25. Show me a denarius, that's a coin, it's about a day's wage. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar's the thing that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. I imagine most of you, whether you grew up in the church or not, have heard that line before. But let's not forget that what is ordinary to us was extraordinary to these people because where the story ended, look at verse 26. Marveling at his answer, they became silent. So what we see is if we rightly understand what Jesus is saying here, his answer is not merely beautiful in terms of language, but it is profound, marvelous, and tongue-stopping. It is, to put it another way, what they ask in false premise, what Jesus reveals as the true way of God. It has a profound effect on not only how we view government, but how we view God himself. And while there has not been an era of church history that has properly or peacefully understood God in government, the same is true even in our own era. And so it's important to consider the implications of this, where Jesus upholds two seemingly opposed truth in perfect tension in himself. So Jesus affirmed on one hand, the legitimacy of Rome and other human rulers. But he also did that, on the other hand, by affirming all of that rule and authority in submission to God, who is himself the ruler, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. At that time, Tiberius Caesar was Caesar. And so when Jesus said, give the denarius, which had the picture of Tiberius Caesar on it to Caesar, he was validating the social ability of that to be the backbone of an economy, that there were specific rights of redemption, right? Redemption is an economic word, uh, that you could redeem that coin and there was value to it, and then you could pay taxes with it. And so to walk in the way of God in that regard is to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Taxation might be theft on your bumper sticker, but according to Jesus, it's part of the way of God. And depending on where you live in history, Where you live geographically, you may be afforded by your government means to petition, to vote, to protest, or even prescribe new taxes. Those are wonderful rights. But they are rights given subjectively by human governments, not objectively by God. God has validated, ultimately, the right for the government to be a government. And though it may prick our conscience, specifically in Montana, and stir our politically hot-blooded political tension, Jesus' command gets worse. When he says, render, guess what? It's an imperative. It's not not an an option. It's an obligation. He's saying to these people who are overtaxed, to a government that's uh, invading their land, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. The remainder of the New Testament shows how often and how frequently government frustrated the plans of the church, imprisoned the apostles, murdered them, and caused harm to the church. And yet notice what Peter says to the churches scattered across what is now modern-day Turkey and Asia. He says this in 1 Peter 2, Be subject to the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Or of Paul writing to the saints in the epicenter of Roman power in Romans chapter 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. We might say, well, Peter says as long as they're doing good things. Let's not remember that the same Peter who said that is the same Peter who will be crucified by that same government. If anyone had an excuse to, not, to say that the government's not doing good things cards, it would have been Peter. And so what we see here is the default position the Bible holds out towards the government is actually that of obedience. Why two theological reasons, or one theological reason expressed two ways in those texts. First, Peter says the government are those sent by God. Second, Paul says in Romans 13, that every form of human government is instituted and established by God. God is sovereign over every government official. God was sovereign over me when I was elected student body president at Valley Christian School sovereign over that. An early church pastor named Tertullian said this, he said, Christ bids the denarius of man's imprint to be rendered to his Caesar. His Caesar, I say, not the Caesar of a strange God. God is the God over Caesar. God is sovereign over it. The Caesar is God's Caesar. Our president is God's president. The queen of England is God's queen. The Oba of Benin, Africa is God's Oba. There is no sultan, nor sheikh, nor prince, nor prime minister, nor monarch, nor magistrate who is not God's. And while this legitimizes human leaders, it also gives them an expiration date. All human authority is derivative and given and dependent in essence upon the God who is the ruler. One day all human authorities will go away. And the relief for us in the immediate is what Jesus is doing here is we see that citizens don't carry on their shoulders the moral obligation, the moral guilt, or the moral responsibility of flawed or evil government. It's one thing to engage in that, and we ought to where we should. But God is holding those kings, those congressmen, those mayors, just as he holds teachers and pastors and fathers to account for their own actions. Because one day in the book of Revelation, the king of the worlds are called to account to the one who is called the king of kings. They will escape nothing. They will have to give an account book of Hebrews says, me as a pastor, the other five pastors here at this church, we will have to give an account for the care of your souls. So too will kings and queens and governors. And while their authority and obedience will one day go away and be judged, Jesus's rule never will. Jesus's rule is eternal and unending. And in this way, Christians are never permitted to disobey we're only permitted to obey. We obey Jesus by obeying the government and we disobey the government only when we exclusively do so in order to obey Jesus. In other words, only in places where obedience to the government is disobedience to Jesus. We see examples of this in Acts chapter five, where the disciples are given a civil command, stop preaching the gospel. But the disciples say in Acts five twenty nine, we must obey God rather than men. So how do we make sure we're modeling this tension in a way that's truly biblical? How do we know, how do you know the way of God as it relates to public politics? Well, we've seen already in this text that Jesus' default to the Christian is submission. That we ought to not submit uh, as if the government is God, but submit as if submission to the government is submission to God. We trust God, not the government. But then he adds another default, we should do so prayerfully. In First Timothy, Paul says this. He says, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all the people, for kings who are, and all who are in high positions, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, isn't it telling? Like, let's just be sober with our own hearts here of where we all want to get to application like X, Y, Z. Let's start with application A here. How many of us begin our public interaction, our public posting and our private thoughts towards the government with protest where Jesus calls us to begin with prayer? Where we go and we shout to the world what is wrong and Christ calls us to go to him with what is good. The idea that Paul calls us to pray for peace at the hands of government assumes that not all governments will equally lead or protect peace. That's our fault. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve lived in perfect authority in the direct rule of God, but they strained to be their own authority. And since that moment, when sin came into the world, the political problem began. We were made to be ruled by God, but now we're apart from him. In other words, the political longing that you find in every culture, whether it's a tribal uh, tribal nation in a small jungle space, or whether it's the American government, we all have these political longings, and that's because we were made to be ruled. We were made to be ruled by God as king. But because we've separated ourselves from that, we now love, loathe, and long for human leaders because there's this giant gap of leadership, of a good king, of good rule in our lives. But a longing for human leaders to fix what's wrong only works if the problem is as small as human leaders. But we have a divine problem. We need a divine king to rule his people. Therefore, it needed divine fixing. But that's what makes this Jesus who says these words in Luke 20 so incredibly profound. Because a king came. The son of God and the son of man in Jesus Christ. The one who Isaiah prophesied of in Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, where he says, the government shall be on his shoulder of the increase and of his government, there shall be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Here is the king you were made to be ruled by. Here is the king who brings us peace and resolves tension. But that exclusive and ruling kingdom, though it has been inaugurated today, has not yet been finalized. Jesus has yet to come back. And that's why Jesus calls us in this time where we have a king, but we also have plural kings. That's why he calls us to pray. Pray orients our hearts to who is really in charge. And we need Jesus' help to live in light of this because sometimes obedience to that king puts us at odds with human kings. Sometimes we're asked to do what Jesus prohibits. Sometimes we're told to do what Jesus, or sometimes we're asked to do what Jesus prohibits and sometimes we're told to stop what Jesus commands. And when moments like that happen, we must soberly, seriously, prayerfully, and which with much reason, render ourselves to God and not to Caesar. Or that is to say, we render to Caesar people who are gods in every circumstance. We belong to him and we come to all governments in that, which is to say, this is not merely a political distinction. It's a worship distinction. This is the way of God. This is what they're seeking answers for. And this is our final point this morning, devotional authority, devotional authority. You see, Jesus calls for this coin and the, the, the coin is significant because Jesus says whose image and whose inscription is on it. And so the image on it was a bright beaming face of Tiberius Caesar. But there was an inscription on it. And, f- and funny enough, so the inscri- inscription says, uh, to the divine son of Augustus. And so it was tied to this worship. And actually, uh, it was, archaeologists have found there's a bunch of uh, denarius that didn't have that inscription on it because the Jews threw such a fit over it about being potentially tied to worship that they made some coins that didn't have that image. But here, what do these scribes have in their pocket? A coin with an image on it. They don't actually care about the issue as long as it gets them a Subway sandwich at the end of the day. They care about the issue only because they hate Jesus. And so the image was a picture of Caesar the inscription was that it was rendered to Caesar. It belonged to the one who was a god, and Jesus here draws a distinction from those two things, which befuddle everyone, and one that must be settled in your own heart today. He affirmed the giving of taxes to Caesar, but he refused to affirm the divinity of Caesar. He says, in essence, give your wages to Caesar, but give your worship to God. And in using this image and inscription theme, he's hearkening all the way back, not to the economy but to creation itself. In Genesis 1, we were made in the image of God. That's the theme we're going to come back to again next week. When you think this is scandalous, wait till I tell you there's no sex in heaven. Okay, Um, if that's not a teaser. uh, All right, so um, stand focused here. Uh, so, So here, we were made in the image of God. We belong to him. But through our sin, we have scandalized, desecrated, and kind of blurred that image. So think of it like a coin you found in the gutter. You can't really see what's on there, but it's made, it's there. It's just caked in stuff. And the problem of sin is that if we're made in the image of God, where we begin to understand ourselves, not by looking at the image of man, but the image of God. But if we cannot see that image, we have two problems. One, we don't know what we're supposed to look like. Two, we don't know who we're supposed to be offered to. That's really the heart of all of our confusion. We don't know what we're supposed to look like, and we don't know who we're supposed to be offered to. But look at how Paul puts this in Colossians 1 verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of God, the firstborn of all creation. Here is our image to those who could not see it. Here is what the perfect man looked like because the perfect man was God himself. But what is the inscription written on us? That coin was to be given to the divine Caesar. Well, Paul continues in the very next verse. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Here is Jesus who shows us what we were to look like. And here is Jesus who shows us how we will be redeemed from him and for him. You see, this is significant because the critics were after who gets the coin, but Jesus is after who gets the worship. We're also often concerned with what we're to do with our purses, but in this text, Jesus says, we are his purse. We belong to him. Augustine said it this way. He said, we are God's money, but we are like coins that have wandered away from the treasury. What was once stamped upon us has been worn down by our wandering. The one who restamps his image upon us is the one who first forms us. He seeks his own coin as Caesar sought his coin our hope of redemption again that monetary word is that because we did not fulfill the image well, that another would fulfill it for us and that he would cause us. We always say the gospel is the good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and to restore us to God, to redeem us back to the one for whom we were made. And here's why this is important because what was the hope of religious officials back in verse 20? Did you notice that? Luke is using these words. Pay attention. He could have said it with one verb. He said it with two verbs, okay? To deliver him up, or two nouns, excuse me, um, to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. Their hope is entirely in the Roman system that they're simultaneously hoping that Jesus rebukes. They hate Rome, but they love Rome. While protesting the taxation of it, they actually hoped in the redemption of Rome that Rome would come and solve this issue of the sticky wicket of Jesus of Nazareth. But our only hope, your only hope is that you will be redeemed by a greater king. We are not redeemed by Caesar. We are not redeemed by presidents. We are not redeemed by politics because we are not made in the image of man. Neither is man's inscription upon you. You belong to God and you are made in his image. Christ not Caesar is our image. Christ not Caesar is our hope. So what do we do? We render all of it to him. All of our devotion, all of our worship, all of our allegiance, all of our affections to him, all of our tax. (laughs) Like April comes around, let's get get doxological about filing our taxes here, people. Jesus is after this robust worship that in doing this, we are after him. We are worshiping him. Now, isn't it funny? Maybe this is me. Um, that we so often protest, whine, and grumble about the government, but at the end of the day, how many of us actually disobey the government's law? We shake our fists, we type our X's or whatever it's called now. It used to be Twitter, most of you don't even know what I'm talking about in the first place. Um, And we, we what do we do? We obey. How many of us claim Christ to be king, worship him as sovereign, come and sing songs, but we have no problem disobeying him in countless spheres daily. Saying, no, 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 no. These finances are mine. This sex life is mine. This family is mine, this sin is mine, we have an authority problem, and here Jesus gives us freedom by rendering it all back to God. Jesus makes a distinction between God and government, but he doesn't disconnect the two. There's no sacred and secular divide. That's what Jesus is showing here. While we're in the spec- secular sphere, we are image bearers of Christ. Our conversion pulls our hope out of the public sphere, but it doesn't pull us out of the public sphere. We still live there. And so we need to engage in these spaces as restamped, reclaimed, and redeemed people. And to do this, we need wisdom. Paul says that uh, we're to act uh, in relationship to the government in Romans 13 verse five in a way where we have a clean conscience. That means that our conscience needs to be groomed um, in Christ's shape according to scripture. So we need to soberly assess where our conscience is groomed by personal preference or where it's groomed by careful submission to Jesus and to his word. Jesus submitted himself unjustly to Pilate's edict death, death on a cross. And let me remind you that Jesus himself showed that a coin marked with Caesar's divinity was not sinful when used for buying groceries, but it would have been sinful if the riches and the protection of Caesar subtly became the hope of Jesus' people. If the government told me that in order to preach Christ I needed to wear a monkey on my head, I'd go find a monkey. If the government told me I had to stop preaching Christ, I'd hope you have to come bail me out of jail if everything is rendered to Jesus, then these lines in the sand are defined only by Jesus, not by our preferences, not by what we think is best in the moment, but by what we think glorifies God. Because brothers and sisters, you won't save anyone. Your government won't save anyone. Your ballot won't save anyone. So show them Christ. Show them Christ. Show them Christ through your obedience. Show them Christ through your Christ-shaped disobedience. You see, Paul actually talks uh, to, uh, Paul and Peter, when they talk about how we um, interact with the government, they actually assume that it's when we put up with much that is burdensome and cumbersome that the gospel actually goes forward, It's actually a beautiful aroma of Christ to the people. Listen to 1 Timothy 2, 4. So this is right after he says, pray for the government. He says, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God, our savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. Peter says this in 1 Peter 2, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. What Jesus is showing us here is that our hope is just as big as our king. That every aspect of our life matters because of the Jesus who redeemed us. We can't segment. That's what got these Pharisees into trouble. They came in, they segmented the sacred and the secular. Jesus says, all of it is mine. Worship me in the midst of all of it. Give it all to me. Because our king is global, so too is our witness. Because our king has redeemed the whole of our lives, our lives are different. Everything we do is in some way an act of worship. And so we ought to make sure that it is worshiping the Christ who is our king and not human images and emblems of fallen kings the whole of our life is to be rendered to king, the king who saves us and dear church this is the point of our church colossians 1:18 says this and he is the head of the body the church he is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent we come with questions and we face challenges every day but because we've seen Christ, we make him preeminent in everything. May it be so even for us this week. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you do in us, by the power of your Holy Spirit, the very things that you command in us in your word. We thank you that we are not saved by our effort nor by our politics, but we're saved by Christ who has done the work for us and who has restored us back to God. And so Jesus, even this week, I pray that while we have clarity on where things are rendered to Caesar and where things are rendered to God, that we realize that God has ownership over all of it, that we never encounter anything in our lives that ought not to be rendered first and foremost to God. I we pray that through our witness, people see the desire of God to save that people see the love of Christ through the trust we have in a sovereign king, not in human kings. We pray all this in your name, amen.